Think about it, though. How many geniuses that yeah, Africa needs, Kenya, Ethiopia needs, exist in rural Africa that because of the lower quality of education outcomes in those areas, it's not just that individual child doesn't have the opportunity, you know, isn't doing everything they could do, it's that the country suffers because of the kind of loss of human capital. Salam and hello, everyone. My name is Lily Bakala Piper, and I am so glad that you've tuned in today. This week on the show is a mashup of the personal and professional for me. I'm really delighted that you've tuned in because you'll get to hear the voice and the interview with my husband, Dr. Benjamin Piper. If you are new to my show, you may not know that my family and I have lived here in East Africa for the last 16 years four years in Ethiopia, and the last 12 in Nairobi. And my family is a blended family. My husband is Black American. Myself, I'm an Ethiopian immigrant. And we have forged this life together really almost as an unexpected experiment of coming back to the continent to build a life and to build family together. And of course, Ben has been a big part of that story. So I wanted to have him on the show to talk about a few things, about our path here of coming home to Ethiopia and then eventually Kenya, of growing our family here and raising our kids here. Our kids range in age from 20 to 15, and we have been here for 16 years. So we didn't plan on this life, but it's been a beautiful one. And it's been nice to kind of reflect on what it's meant to us to raise kids on the continent as both members of the diaspora as well as Black Americans. In addition to that, Ben is an educational researcher. He is the Director for Global Education for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And in his work, he has written and thought deeply about international education policy. So we talk a bit about that on the show as well, what it's meant for him as an education researcher to spend all really of his professional life here on the ground, working with governments and communities to try and improve learning outcomes and returns for both families and children, as well as large-scale programs. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation. It is something that I've been looking forward to, and also, you know, a little way for me to offer my listeners a chance to get to know me better and understand kind of why I do this work, why I want to tell the stories I want to tell. Because this place, this continent, this region is both deeply personal to me and also a place that I've been privileged to build a professional path and a path that I've built with my hubby, Ben. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with my husband, Dr. Benjamin Piper. Enjoy. Honey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> been a long and waited invitation, but uh, glad to be here. Yes, if you're new to Salam and Hello, you may not know that I had a previous show called Uproot, which I did, I think, 37 episodes. And you were actually invited to come to one of those episodes, but on a panel mm-hmm. of other guests. So this is your first solo, solo. interview here. So that was welcome, 1% welcome. of Uproot. <laughs> you were 1%, but now you get it. That here. <laughs> welcome to the show. But maybe you can tell the listeners a little bit more about your professional work. What do you do? What brought you to the continent? Yeah, I think we've been uh, together for living in the continent for 16 years. And while we were you know, doing family together professionally, I was initially came for data collection for my dissertation back in Ethiopia. Um, and I was, remember it was a one-year fellowship. We were just going to be here to collect data and then go back. But then once you move to this part of the world and you see the both the the power in the culture, the power in the way that Ethiopians initially did family and did life together that kind of was much more rich than 
the kind of the U.S. style of just my immediate family is all that matters. Anyway, we fell in love with uh, with being there, and um, well, wasn't Ethiopia wasn't always so easy, but uh, <laughs> we fell in love with so much of it. And one year became now now sixteen. So I started off doing dissertation data collection, then eventually started working for an international NGO in the education sector, doing some of the first assessments of learning outcomes of countries here in East Africa, the first assessments of of reading outcomes in uh, Ethiopia, Uganda, and Kenya was my first kind of job in 2008 to 11. And um, it's just, it was a heartbreaking story given the real expansion of education access in this part of the world. And families really investing their time, resources. We were laughing about sending kids off to, to school a moment ago, just how much people believe in education. But the outcomes are bad. Um, and the outcomes are much worse than the skill level of the kids. Right. So there has been a, a mismatch in, in those outcomes. So for the last 12 years or so, I'm getting the, num- the numbers wrong, been trying to work on uh, education improvement programs at medium and then national scale here in, uh, here in Kenya, national scale, and then now globally with this real issue of families are investing in putting their kids in school and the data says that they're not getting the outcomes that they that they deserve and it's not the kids teachers are well meaning there's some systematic mismatches between those that skill level and the outcomes so that's the problem we're trying to solve to trying to contribute to solve anyway so excited about some of the progress but um I don't think we would have it any other way. Once we once we came to this part of the world and saw the the talent level and and expertise that exists here, being able to kind of give it a bigger window and being able to support them and uh, and those movements has been exciting for me. Well, I'm going to come back to a lot of things you said around the power of the culture and the mismatch between investment of families and skills and outcomes. I'm going to come back yeah. to all of that, but I want to come to what you said at the end, which is this idea of you know, seeing the skill level here and realizing how much there was to offer here. I knew what was to offer here all along because this is not new to me, being Ethiopian and coming from that culture and immigrating to the U.S. as a kid. But you are you are not African mm. per se. Mm-hmm. You are African-American, born and raised in Cleveland, Definitely. Ohio. Yes, very proud. So let me go ahead and say that before you jump on the mic I'm and start talking about first. Northeast Ohio. It's uh, yes, important okay, ben, for people to know. Listen, not everybody knows you on this podcast. <laughs> I think I want to start wondering why you're talking about Ohio <laughs> yeah. so much. So <laughs> let me just let me just pause here because I think it's it's something that is a big part of our story. This idea of blending a life of a Black American experience yeah. in the U.S. with an Ethiopian immigrant. 30 years in the U.S. for me, so a long time, not insignificant, and then building a life here back on the continent. It's been a journey for us. Yeah. And there have been many moments where we thought we would go back. We have four kids ranging in age now from, how old is our oldest? 20? 20. 20. Our youngest is 15. So we've been here a long time. Tell me from your perspective what you've learned about yourself as a Black American, having spent yeah. all these years now in the continent. Yeah, I think um, we can go back to university where I had the opportunity to actually uh, visit Africa for the first time, a small trip um, near Nyahururu uh, when I was 20 years old and just really fell in love with that part of the country and the rural, um, the life of rural Kenyans and the community that they create that is very different than uh, than I grew up. Um, because you were growing up in a semi-urban yeah. 
setting. Called school. Cleveland, Ohio. Called Cleveland, Ohio, but a very large high school, 2,000 people in your high school, yeah. went to a small liberal arts college, yep. and then you spend the summer in Western Yeah, yeah, Kenya. so it's a very different world, right? So yeah. we, you know, we were dating at the time, so you were playing up how wonderful Africa was, <laughs> um, but I had to see it for myself. Um, and it was a very different world. And I think you, there's parts of your calling from God and your life that even if you haven't experienced it, when you see it, that just something in your heart kind of resonates. So I, I just would be honest with you that um, being in Kenya for those what, I remember, six weeks or so just felt right and felt like home, even though I'd never been there. Now, as an African-American, it's such a different world than I grew up in and a different culture, but that you could just feel some of your kind of fundamental calling being connected what to was it. different to you? This kind of overlaps with getting to know your family even before we got married. Just the way that this this is predominantly Kukuyu culture, right? So the way that the family matters more and f- the definition of family is very different than the U.S. Family means your, you know, obviously there's there's a, we talked about this a lot in your family. Like, mm-hmm. is this a? Is I this know what a, you're going to say. I have to say, is it a cousin or a play cousin? See, cousin okay, the, so for the all black side the of black the people listening to this in America, we know there is such a thing as play cousins. I don't know yeah. if play cousins exist in Africa, right? But it's this term that you're not related by blood, but they're your cousin, right? So as an but African American, it's the same thing. We don't call no. it play cousins, but they're just your cousins. You grew up with them. You may or may not be related biologically, but, and, but does it matter? It does not. It actually it does, does not. Ma- it doesn't matter. It you doesn't really matter. love them. I just want to know. I'm just a logical person. I just want to know where the Ben wants the to know how far the money is. needs to go. And he wants exactly. to know how far does this money and this, this bread need to, to go. To but anyway, so anyway. you were saying the family So the, actually the point I'm making is the opposite, that it is the power of that broader, unspecific to family tree relationships that you'll do anything for that is a better way to live than kind of, a, okay, you are my uncle, but if you're my great uncle, if you're my second cousin, then that's not really close enough to help out with school fees. That's a very different way of living, right? So that if if people here are connected, I know, anyway, now that we pay a couple of people's school fees, that you do wonder, okay, there has to be a Where's breaking the point. There is a line. Okay, now I do need to know. But um, anyway, <laughs> point being that um, I just think there's there's so much in, in this part of the world that Americans struggle with. And I, we talked about this too, that think about poverty, obviously there's, you know, GDP per capita. But this is American and Western society is poor in some of the stuff that matters more than GDP yeah, that's per so, capita. That's, that's really important. I think you're right. I think when we go back to the U.S. in the summertimes, oftentimes to see our extended family, it sticks out to our kids, I think, often, that those, those differences. Yeah. They notice and pick up on things that, that are lost on us because we did grow up in the U.S. Yeah. and they have not. They've grown up in this sense of everybody's auntie and uncle and they know the differences between India and Pakistan. And yeah. they have they have these, like the minutia of cultures is really salient to them. Um, so, you know, in your time, I guess in blending, again, the professional and the personal, there have been many points where we thought we would go back because, you know, because we came, like you said, one year thinking we we're going to, do data collection. We had just had our fourth child. Yeah. I was very eager to get back to Ethiopia and spend some time there and, and have the kids spend some time in their culture. I never got to go back as a kid myself. We left when I was a year and a half. 
because of commu- the communist regime at the time, even when it was overthrown, there was just never a clear window for our family to go back and spend any significant time other than after we got married. So I was keen to go back. One year turns to two, turns to three, turns to four. You know, we spent four years in Ethiopia, eventually come to Kenya. But every two or three years or so, there'd be another opportunity to go back, but we continued to choose to stay. Mm. At some point, our kids start to lobby us to stay when they knew mm. these decision points were yeah. coming. But let's talk a little bit why we did stay. I think for those in the diaspora, mm. who probably this conversation maybe is maybe more interesting than those who are here on the ground in East Africa. Why for you do you think we stayed? I think it's a, when you do the analysis, because, you know, I'm a spreadsheet-driven person. Yes, I like to say he lives a spreadsheet-driven life (laughs) or Excel-driven life. Yeah, so um, we would have to have a different sheet for the interpersonal, non-measurable things that, mattered more. And I think, remember, actually, we had one round where the spreadsheet, the two spreadsheets were saying we should go, but then we took a bigger look at what matters from a family connection, friendship, kind of who your people are. And then that calculation was different. And I think we've been here long enough that the Western way of looking at the world and making decisions is less salient to us. So that kind of like third spreadsheet, which is a little bit more um, qualitative, (laughs) made a bigger difference. So anyway, why do we stay? I just think we are we are privileged to be here. And again, as Americans in a country that has pretty restrictive immigration policies, we have to appreciate that we have been in countries who have been open to us when our countries are not always open back. Very true. Um, but I mean, from a, from a purpose point of view, you, I feel like we can be more helpful in this part of the world. Now, that the bar for that is quite high because I really do believe in having the people that we're working with take over my job. So that's happened a few times where the job that I had, if, if I really believe what I say, where Africans, Kenyans, Ethiopians, whatever, have the skill set to do it, they just need to give the opportunity, then that's happened several times. So we just have to keep hopefully making doing, yeah, yeah, making that happen and also yeah. only staying if it makes sense for us from a contribution point of view. You know, the expat thing is is easy and nice, and people stayed too long. So I've uh, wanted to leave a couple of times because I was worried we were getting there. But then new things came up where I feel like, again, we're able to have a window where we can make a, a difference and then also build up the skill sets and provide opportunities for Africans, uh, Kenyans, Ethiopians, et cetera, um, that to, to allow them to shine. So I'm, I'm, I actually feel good about where we are and continuing to stay. Do you want to ask me why you think we we stayed? Why do you think we stayed? Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is your, you're supposed to help me out yeah, here. I'm I mean, not you're so not like a normal guest. You're supposed backwards to help. Uh, interview. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, thank you for asking. Thank you for the question. Um, I actually think we stayed because we wanted to raise black children in a black mm-hmm. country. I mean, I remember distinctly. I think it's 2014 when Trayvon Martin was killed and the protest started to flare up. Yeah. I think that's right. Trayvon Martin was it 2014? You're always better at It might be Michael Brown. I just remember at certain points having two black sons thinking, I'm not taking my black children to that country. Because while we had and do have and are blessed to have rich, rich relationships here, our kids have been so blessed to grow up with aunts and uncles here who are not our blood relatives, but who have loved them uh, as they are. We did miss our family. You know, we are blessed to have brothers and sisters and grandparents who are extraordinary. And we did feel that gap of not having them. We do feel it remains to be. I mean, our son is 
going to the U.S. next week, and it's my sister who's going to drive up from another state to pick him up. I mean, we have these extraordinary family members who have, I think, you know, paid the price for us to be here. But at some point, I remember thinking, you know, I'm not taking my Black sons back here. You know, I felt like their humanity was threatened, whereas at least here, here, where there definitely is threat of police brutality, especially if you're poor, and that threat remains every day for young Black Kenyans and Ethiopians particularly, um, I just thought, no, I just they they are protected here in a way, emotionally and psychologically, psychologically in particular, that yeah. they could never be in the U.S. I remember when Barack Obama was elected the second time. For our kids, he's the only president they knew at that point. So for them, the president of the United States was Black. The president of Kenya was Black. The beggar on the corner was also Black. The neighbor who's rich is Black. Their teacher sometimes was Black. <laughs> the, the vendor at the grocery store was Black, you know. So for them, in their ecosystem, everybody was Black, which allowed Blackness to be complex and yeah. rich and deep. Their, the room for stereotype became very small. Yeah. The stereotypes now became the expat stereotype or the American stereotype, as opposed to, as a Black male, I expect you to jump me. And that, to me, was such a beautiful, radical option as a parent that I did not know existed before we came here. Because, I mean, we both saw our parents struggle with those issues of race raising us, right? You're raised by a single mom in inner city Cleveland, a single white mom. I was raised by Ethiopian immigrants who that race issue was, oh my goodness, like the elephant in the room that we didn't know was in the room. We didn't know what to name it so many times. So for us, at least for me, it just became No, and I think... We, we did give up something on that. I mean, we in the summers, we try and make sure that our kids spend time with uh, African-Americans because it's important yeah, for them to feel for sure. connected back to the people they'll, you know, if they go to America, they go to college in America, they need to be able to connect with. But I think that's one thing they lost, but the, or have lost over time. But the benefits from, uh, as you said, emotional health point of view, confidence, ability, I'm just thinking about our the, the range of personality types and skill sets amongst our kids is is in no small part because they are, as you said, allowed to be uniquely themselves in ways that being an African-American in the U.S. and often complex racial environments makes more complicated and more difficult. You, I mean, growing up in an American high school, predominantly black, there are kind of contours and lines that inform how you are and how you act. If you go out, if you go beyond them, there are some yeah. costs. I feel like we just, I think we can say for sure that some of our kids are much, much more themselves than they would be if they had grown up elsewhere. And yeah, you you mentioned kind of what they may have lost in terms of that identity with African Americans, and we have met some here over the years. But you know, you're right. There, there's something when they go back in the summers, they're having to study and and yeah. navigate on their own. And but for me, I don't know. As an immigrant, I think I was always having to navigate that. So to me, it's a fair trade-off for yeah. the beauty having, I think, what they feel are deep roots here. But but let's reflect a little bit because our oldest is 20, mm. our youngest is 15. So we're not by any means done parenting, but we are kind of done with those younger, mm-hmm. what are those things called? Formative years, I guess. Um, what do you think we got wrong? <laughs> what, what would we do differently when we, if we could do it again, especially oh, around I've this got a good one. black identity and African no, identity this is stuff? Even better than black identity. But don't say anything about me. 
Get, say that. Yeah, just to say, interview. say what oh, you did wrong. Okay, what, what we did wrong. <laughs> okay, we, okay, fine. I think, you know, the, you'll love this, Lil. Oh. The ability to play and jump around. You know, all the children, their first time falling <sighs> was with me. Because the parenting of the Ethiopian diasporas, don't, don't, don't run, you'll fall. Don't play, you're going to hurt yourself. So when I was able to extract them from the... Uh, My grip. <laughs> My thorny, grip. tight grip. <laughs> I'm just sure, you know. The uh-huh. worry about them falling. Um, they were able to play, and they all hit their head once or twice. So that was your. That's your main thing that you figured out. That's the first wrong. thing I want to say. Second thing I want to say. Um, I don't really think there's much we lost. I guess the 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 it, the time with cousins, the time with grandparents, the time with um, aunts and uncles that are so valuable for kind of formative growth and knowing who you really are because they're the kids are influenced by their parents obviously but also by their broader family and we have kind of surrogate family here and close friends we've really been fortunate and blessed in that way but i do think you you lose when you choose to not be around your, your, your yeah your but we, we got we got a good about that and not decent and these last couple of years actually ironically yeah. through the pandemic Everybody COVID kind of stuck in. us with people, which was which was a shout out to Hannah out there, staying at our house forever uh, last year, which was which was beautiful. You know, what? I think I think we did language maybe wrong though. Oh, I, I that, know. That's we did. the one thing that yeah. I, I regret. I, I think, mean, this is what I was trained in and knew yeah. the whole time what we should do. We just didn't do it. Yeah, I wish we had done more because our kids, at least our eldest, understand and speaks Amharic. The others are a little shaky, super shaky. Kiswahili, one of our kids is taking it in IB, so he's he's got some functional, but I don't know. Ernest and Rick, who are helping us out today, can tell us if his Kiswahili is any good. <laughs> they're giving us a, a positive indication behind the, what behind the camera. Say, we'll see. What else are they going to say? Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. But, you know, I wish we had done Kiswahili more. I wish we had really, really hammered that home. But maybe they'll, yeah. they'll get back to it. Solomon said the other day he wants to take Amharic uh, in college so that he can keep it up for his kids. So I was, I was happy to hear that. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're going to try and make up for our... our right. So if you're listening there to this are. as a parent who's struggling to, like, cement language for your kids, don't give up. I think, like, no, it's worth I th- the struggle. I think to, just the best thing we knew to do, which we didn't do, is one parent speaks in one language, one parent speaks in the other language. Yeah, and just don't don't give up on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Tried. <laughs> Let me move on to another question that, that that's maybe easier. So, you know, we you talked about earlier, so maybe it's a good time to come back to about the power of culture. I've never heard you say it that way, but I thought it was quite beautiful that you said that that's what kind of compelled you to take your focus from maybe an American lens of professional focus mm. and, and make it African. Because you were trained in education, you spent time teaching in the U.S., in what were Title I schools. So for yeah. those who don't know what that is, it's a category, the poorest schools who receive federal aid in the United States. So those schools are almost entirely black and brown children. So that's kind of where you were focusing your teaching. That's where you were teaching in elementary, middle school. Um, and then at some point, you started your graduate work and the shift became entirely Africa. And you did your dissertation on the Ethiopian education system. Someone was asking me about your work the other day, and I said, yeah, Ben has been to more parts of Ethiopia than I have been. You went to all 11 regions at the time and really got to see that mismatch that you were talking about earlier. So let's talk about that for a minute, because I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about what what really has also kept us here is the opportunity to work in development and work Mm -hmm. in these spaces to, like you said, hopefully contribute. So in 10 to 20 years, Ben, what do you how will you know that what you've been working on is actually working? Yeah. You know, what are the outcomes that you want to start seeing that will show that evidence? No, actually, my team, we have a, 
we have outcomes by 2025, so we have two years to okay. at least make some progress That's on that. Bigger outcomes by 2020, by 2030. I mean, it's pretty simple. Look, the the gap in in education in the U.S., but but specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa, is not not measuring whether kids are learning. And we have had so much investment in countries in Africa have have really have really meant the international benchmark babe for um, investment in education, just about to be twenty percent of GDP of um, wow. of GDP and five percent of the budget. Is many countries are in that vicinity, so they're spending money on the personnel, they're spending money on some materials, they're spending money on infrastructure. It's just that the combination of those things are not resulting in outcomes. So. It is incumbent on us as societies to support the education system so that particularly poor minority and rural kids have the same academic resources and shot to show their skill level as the urban and wealthy. What's what's happening in so much of Sub-Saharan Africa is it's extremely unequal. Mm. And but then we still sit for the same exam. There was just the KCSE. Results released this year, and you know, Here in Kenya, in Kenya, um, and there's always celebration of the kid from the rural area who did really well. But the fact of the matter is that even the percentage of kids who sit for KCSE are much lower from the rural and poor areas. And there's the same exam, but the outcomes are different. But because it's an exam, it's easy to say, "Oh, this kid didn't study hard enough." When the when the fundamental reason why the outcomes are low is because the system and instructionally and materially around them was 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 bad, was not enough, didn't give them the shot. And think about it, Lil. How many geniuses that yeah, Africa needs, Kenya, Ethiopia needs, exist in rural Africa that because of the lower quality of education outcomes in those areas. It's not just that individual child doesn't have the opportunity, you know, isn't doing everything they could do. It's that the country suffers because of the kind of loss of human capital. So to answer your question specifically, I think that we have a window of time right now where people are aware that there is a learning crisis, that learning outcomes are so much lower than they should be, and that countries and governments and teachers and the system needs to improve improve instruction to increase learning. Okay, let's slow down. Improve instruction yes. to increase learning. Yes. So is that what the focus is then? Improving yes. instruction? Yes. How do you do that at large scale and make it simple for listeners here who are not practitioners in education? Yes. So in most of sub-Saharan Africa, you have teachers who have been hired. Now, not every who is a teacher in Africa, wanted to be a teacher when they were a kid. But leaving that aside, there are teachers in schools. They are often and usually quite well-meaning. They will do, if if they knew what to do to help kids learn more, they would do it. Yeah. But the expectation for them is to cover a syllabus, to cover a set of content, and do all the things they're supposed to do. So they said, yes, I have taught grade three numeracy. That is a different request than to make sure that kids have the skills of grade three geometry, making sure that they're getting to the level of two-digit subtraction effectively. Um, and so what does it mean? What it, fundamentally, it means that we need to give teachers better support and better materials to teach the complex instructional issues that kids in grade three, I don't know why that's the top of mind, but kids in grade three need. Um, so what's worked at scale of late? Um, that has really good evidence. Actually, the meeting I was just at in Sierra Leone was about this. It was seven African ministers and their teams coming together. It was, it was the 
the meeting was called the F- uh, Foundational Learning Exchange. So seven African uh, ministers and their teams meeting together to talk about this issue of the learning crisis and what they're individually doing at the country level to improve those outcomes. So in general, the, the thing that most of them are doing and investing the, 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 the greatest amount of resources on are kids need to have books one-to-one that are structured in a way that allow them to One-to-one teach. meeting, not, not 10 kids sharing one text. Exactly. Every kid exactly. having their own book. Exactly. Yeah. Every kid has, has their own book. The teacher has a lesson plan connected to the book. And it's important to, do, to link those two things because um, it's complicated. To teach, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where most people are bilingual or trilingual or multilingual, it's complicated to be able to teach the ability to decode English in particular and French in particular. You can decode Kiswahili very easily because once you know the letter sound, it's always a letter sound. It's Mm -hmm. phonetic, right. But in English, the letter U doesn't always say, it says U in Kiswahili, but in English it's A, except when it's U. Except when it's part of ooh, right? Yeah. It's a very different sound. So I don't want to go. You stop me if I'm going too much in the details. <laughs> but fundamentally, we need to have teachers with the tools to teach these complex things. They'll do it if they have the scaffolding and support they need. Uh, they need to have the, the lesson plans. Kids need the books. And then they, they need the training and support, which will allow that to happen. And that's working. I mean, in Kenya, it's probably the, probably the worldwide best um, case where learning outcomes doubled at a national level program was implemented in every primary school, implemented fully by the Kenyan government with some support. So those sort of things are happening in other countries. It is possible to do. It requires a high level of implementation expectation, and it requires governments, like we saw in Sierra Leone this week, governments to say it's important and we're going to invest the resources and time and focus from the system to make learning what matters, not just getting kids to school, but while they're in school to learn. So what I want to see in 2025 and then 2030 is that substantially more kids have the basic skills and then we can move up the, the rest of the sector. Let's make one more shift. Thanks, honey, for that. Sure. I think um, I've seen you labor at that for these last many years. So thank you for your labor at that. It's been important work. Um, let's shift a little bit to back to America and the diaspora and some of those conversations really quickly as we kind of wrap this up, because I think you and I could talk a long time, but you have a meeting <laughs> that you have to rush to. So we got to wrap this up. It's a but, program um, working to improve learning outcomes. In oh, large okay. Scale. Well, then we better let you go. You can't in, just be sitting on a podcast Africa. all day. Yeah. You know, yeah. what am I doing? Yeah, right. you're right. Fine. Okay. So um, I want you to talk to your friends back in Cleveland Yeah. and, you know, people back in South Carolina that we knew friends back in Boston, what do they need to know about this part of the world that they still don't get? I think, you know, just part of it is the very simple misunderstanding of what Africa is actually like. Africa is like a room like this where you have technology and technical expertise who are doing world-class things. Africa has a... Actually, babe, if you think about it from the, the human capital dividend, the possibilities that exist in this continent, they're... Uh, growth rates in young people in sub-Saharan Africa means that Africa is going to have a booming number of young, potentially well-educated people who can contribute not just to their national you know, economy, but to the world. So if you, back to my people in the U.S., if you want to invest, if you want to invest 
in a continent that's going to have a return that's going to make you some money. <laughs> this, this is the gods that do it. I'm actually quite an Af- Af- uh, Africa optimist from an economic growth point of view. The U.S. Um, is much lower growth potential, and it's the best growth potential of anywhere in the rich world. Um, I think there's talent here. I think there's expertise here. I think there's opportunity here. I think there's people here who can do it themselves. I think one of the things that you and I always complain about is the typical American who says, oh, I love Africa. Let me come help Africa. And the noise is to no end. Africans don't need help. Kenyans don't need help. These people in this room don't need help. They need the opportunity to to apply their skills to a challenge in front of them and to do that well. And to the extent that we have a role in development, it's to be able to provide opportunities for the talented people on this continent to do well. So what do Americans need to know? This is a growth area. They need to know that the skill levels are high. And they need to know that um, they're actually suffering a bit stuck in America. I, I have a trip on. <laughs> we don't want them to come here. Don't yeah, say exactly. that. I'm just kidding. Well, I have a trip Bring your on, tourism uh, dollars. But I have that's a trip it. on Sunday to the U.S. and <laughs> I'm dreading it a bit. <laughs> so I'm going to talk to the diaspora because I think uh, your message is, is well said to kind of Americans who are thinking about this space in a very black and white, a very singular story lens. You know, I think I would add to that, that to the diaspora, that if you haven't had a chance to come back or bring your kids back, save every penny you can and try and make that happen. I think the value of seeing yourself reflected at every single bus stop, grocery store, on the news, cultural events is so immeasurable and so powerful. It is restorative. It is healing. Um, it is everything. Yeah. It is everything. And I don't think we can ever underestimate that. And so, and for the diaspora who's also looking for an opportunity to come back, I would say come back with also a vision of how you can plug in more deeply. I think th- what makes worth staying here as well for us in terms of not only saying, are we still contributing, is also the the depth of relationship that we have with communities that are beyond ourselves. You know, back home in Ethiopia, I think it's staying, trying to stay connected to places and purposes that we feel matter, that are, you know, changing communities, that are making a difference, that are creative. I mean, yeah. for me, it's the creative industry, you know, yeah. seeing my cousins creating, you know, just leather tennis shoes, shout out Enzi, you know, amazing leather goods, Rosa Basinica. I mean, it's just seeing like this, this amazing growth and potential that's there and wanting to be a part of it, wanting to be a part of that story. I think for somebody who grew up in the U.S. and who is always looking for where do I belong, where do I fit, where is home, um, I'm so grateful that um, I've been able to, both I say thank you to Kenyans for giving us a home yeah. because we have felt so welcome in this country. Um, and also to be back in Ethiopia and to be back on the ground here, I'm so grateful that we've had these years. You know, I get emotional about it. Well, It's made a difference. I also think we should be help make sure people don't have too rosy a picture of what sure, life would be like. Sure, you remember It's not that? Wakanda, right? It's not, yeah, it's not Wakanda. <laughs> yes, true, true. But also it's, um, it's it, the problem is not that, it's not the Wakanda. The problem yeah. is, or the Kenya or Uganda, the problem is that, the diaspora person who has yeah. an idealized view of what the world would look like and needs to be prepared for the reality of daily life of yeah. of, of of a billion people who look like them. Yeah. You know that W.E.B. Du Bois thing of, you know, they came to uh, Ghana and threw their passports in the sea and they were there for a couple months and then saw a bunch of black people, black Americans on the beach hunting for their passports, passports. after a couple months because yeah. 
it wasn't that Ghana was the problem. It was that the people had an expectation of Ghana that was... Yeah, that be ready was, to work, right? Yeah. Work it out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, our first two years in Ethiopia in particular were very tough, and mm. I was ready to bounce. Um, as the Ethiopian, I was ready to bounce. I was like, let's yeah, go. Yeah. And Ben was like, let's stay. I love it here. I was like, yeah, I you can stay. It. I'm out. <laughs> you know, so yes, you're right. I mean, you got to figure out taxes and living and schooling and fees and all those things that are... A life is what a life is, you know. But I guess now that we've... Well, it was electricity and water that was really... It was also power and water, basic services, definitely. Um, but I think and now... When we came to Kenya, it was like... Uh, I know, I know. Don't say that out loud. You can cut it out, People in Ethiopia might listen to this. No, no. But, you know, I think... We love it is, anyway. Yeah, but now we're 15, 16 years down the road, and we're like, we're glad we had the opportunity to stay. I mean, I just can't imagine our lives any other way, and our kids, I think, would say the same. So... Before I let you go, we always ask people two questions before we listen, even though I know your answers. Ben, what's your favorite drink? Um, I'm a high class, as you know. High class. Bring so it to me. Uh, it's a cold Coke Zero. Coke it's my Zero. Favorite, favorite drink. Oh, yeah. If anyone has a better option to Coke Zero, please DM me immediately. <laughs> I would love to see my husband not drink Coke Zero anymore. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that's your favorite drink, we know. Okay, and um, Dr. Ben Piper, tell me what is bringing you joy. I mean, I got to take an overnight flight from West Africa to Kenya and get to see my wife and kids today. You know, I'm a very simple person. Coming home to see my family is the is what makes it uh, worth it. Less sappy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I th- there's excitement. I got just going back to this meeting in Sierra Leone, seeing ministers at the table talking to each other. No, you should do it this way. When we were doing it this way in Ivory Coast, this is what was working in Malawi. It's just the right, it's just how it's supposed to be. And yeah, yeah, I'm excited about that. That brings you joy. Mm. Thanks for being here, babe. I I know I get a lot, I'm fortunate to talk to a lot of people, but you'll always be my favorite. (laughs) It's now recorded, so. Yeah, it's now as I have, you're going to play this back from me, aren't you? For sure. Love you. Thank you for Love being you. on Salam and hello. Thanks. So listeners, thanks for going, you know, listening to this episode and, and hearing a little bit more about our story and Ben's work. I, I hope it was uh, meaningful for you too. We'd love to hear from you. So send us a message at lily at salamandhello.com or you can face, find us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Salam and Hello. I think that's the handle. I'm worn out after this interview. I can barely get through the (laughs) outro. (laughs) Anyways, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.